0: You're listening to Dedication Point, a speaker series and podcast produced by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. I'm Matt Podolski. We're following current issues relevant to the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area in this season of the show. Climate change has been the central issue in all of these conversations thus far, and today we are addressing the region's rapidly changing climate head-on. Today's guest recently co-authored a paper that analyzes 19 climate models designed to predict how climate change will affect different ecosystems of the Intermountain West. Climate modeling is a crucial tool for land managers grappling with the inevitability of dramatic landscape changes on our public lands as a result of climate change. We'll be talking about how climate modeling works, what it can tell us about our shared future, and how these models can be used by land managers.
1: Yeah, my name is Scott. Um, Scott Zimmer. I currently work for the BLM in Montrose, Colorado, in southwestern Colorado. But uh what you got in contact with me about is some research I did uh while I was in Utah at Utah State University. I was a master's student there. Um part of the program that I did um that really added to what I was doing there was this program called Climate Adaptation Science is a um National Science Foundation-sponsored program to basically do interdisciplinary research about climate change and adaptation to climate change. and So a lot of people were focused on management implications and things like that. So um, yeah, it was a really good way to kind of add to the work I was doing during during my program and um, get a more full interdisciplinary picture of things.
0: You wrote this scientific paper, or you're, you're one of the authors of this uh, scientific paper that basically looked at all of these different uh, climate models, right, that have been done looking specifically at sagebrush steppe habitat in the Intermountain West. Can you introduce, like, the concept behind this uh, this paper and this this project?
1: Yeah, it's such a huge an amorphous question, you know, to, to think about what, what does the future look like? And um, you can take any number of approaches to model changes and to, you can do some new technique or use some new data and come to slightly different conclusions or maybe totally different conclusions. Um, but we weren't that interested in that. We kind of wanted to get a read on what is the literature saying? Um, are there consistencies or lack of consistencies are people finding the same projections in one area or another um so kind of the idea is a model intercomparison is kind of the, the bigger idea than what we did um and it's kind of a a missed opportunity to me that a lot of it doesn't happen a lot of times and maybe we don't always need new models or maybe new models aren't really saying anything new potentially um so you know you hear about meta-analysis in in some cases um i think there probably could be more meta-analyses done in general but what we were looking at was kind of a spatial inner comparison and we didn't quite do a full-on meta-analysis and didn't follow all of the guidelines for that because dealing with spatial data and the number of different models. It wasn't really possible to do, do that fully, but we were only able to find one other example where somebody did a full-on meta-analysis of these spatial future climate change projections. But what we did was pretty similar. We, we downloaded those results and, you know, stacked them on top of each other, basically and looked pixel by pixel as best as we could, are they projecting the same thing generally um, in the same place? And so we looked at um, what well, we could find uh, enough papers on. Um, so we had cheatgrass, sagebrush, uh, pinyon juniper um, slash conifers, and then um, some papers look either at uh, grass production or forage production or total productivity. And so we kind of lumped all of those to speak to, will there be more production, potentially more forage production in the future? So so what did you find
0: out? I mean, uh, how much consistency was there uh, across all these different uh, climate models?
1: There was a pretty good deal of consistency. Um, and part of the, one of the issues that we had with with compiling this was that we had to break things down pretty much by was there a positive or an increase, no change or a decrease? So we we kind of had a coarser uh, view. Um, you know, every paper has a different response variable or different units and um, so we couldn't look at that that raw type of output. We just had to break it down into, you know, Does cheatgrass suitability increase, decrease, or stay the same? Um, So there was that coarseness to it, but overall, we found a pretty good agreement uh, between models. And so, you know, overall, that's obviously very encouraging from a management standpoint. You know, if if every paper that came out said a different thing about what was going to happen with one thing or another, then I wouldn't want to act upon that. Um, But yeah, the more consistency, the more that should bolster the the confidence to make use of these predictions.
0: You saw this consistency, right? Like across all 19 models. When you like saw that, I mean, was it, was, was that like basically what you were expecting?
1: I think overall I found, we found more agreement than I was expecting to, definitely. Um, and overall, I, th- I think we, we, we found that the changes that we were expecting, as in the, the directionality was what we were expecting, that wasn't clear to me going into it. Um, it it's very easy to cherry pick the you know, one paper or another if you're just citing a paper to say Sagebrush will increase and then you, you can find a paper that will cite that um, or vice versa. And, you know, you might get feedback, you know, oh, it's more complicated than that. This paper said it will increase here and decrease there. And that can all be true. Um, But I I do think it's really a fundamental issue that we don't do a very good job of comparing uh, the models and, and what they're saying. So that was really beyond what we could say about these given species. Beyond that, I really... Uh, stand by that, that the value of the model intercomparison or the idea of that. um, And I'd love to see more of that happen.
0: It does feel like it's, it's an essential tool in, uh, you know, this like really sort of critical um, period that we're in as far as thinking about
1: how we manage these public lands moving into the future. Right. And we kind of contrast, where we are with these climate change projections of vegetation to where we are with um models of climate change itself as in you know there are climate or GCMs that project temperature change, precip changes, etc. Um, and where we are with that, um, we have these established models, maybe 20 um And we almost always look at ensembles of those. Um, So that's a model intercomparison. We're looking at the agreement and the overall with what they project, um, because you wouldn't want to base all of your conclusions on a potentially biased model. And every model has its biases. Um, So I don't know if we would ever get there with uh, vegetation impact model like we're talking about. Um, but it would be amazing if we if we did. And you know, there could be some type of a repository where people would export their their projections or you know get them into some type of a common framework. Um, and then there's no reason that um, this intercomparison couldn't be a lot more simple than what we did
0: how are land managers supposed to act on science if this isn't being done, you know? And I mean, one of the things that that I've experienced in chatting with a number of different scientists who focus on, you know, different, have different specialties, but all sort of working within this field of climate adaptation focused on sagebrush steppe ecosystems, right? And all of them say, yes, we need to we need to be focused on adaptation and we need to be looking at the best science. But what you're saying is that sometimes like there's an, there's an intermediary step that we aren't always taking.
1: Maybe I think you you use the phrase, use the best science a lot. And I, it's just very important to find out what that is and to interpret it correctly. And I think that's a really difficult thing for anybody. So, yeah, I think that's step number one. You know, some of these things are really difficult to plan for, or maybe there's nothing that you would preemptively do. I'm not sure. Um, I think one one potential um, is the, the the declines in pinion juniper that we saw were pretty consistent and pretty widespread. Um, and so that's, you know, the pinion juniper encroachment into shrubland habitats in the lower elevations is pretty widespread. Um, so I kind of see that as maybe an issue where we can probably back off on some of the treatments and the chainings that, that we've been doing. I think just seeing the, fa- the effects of drought in a year like this year, the pinion juniper is dying back in some places. I don't think that's going to be a consistent thing that's, you know, on a constant trajectory now, but the models certainly say that that habitat isn't going to be suitable in the future. So it might be a case where, Hey, we don't need to spend quite as much money treating these areas that are maybe going to get, uh, you know, have the pinion juniper die back naturally over time. Maybe
0: pinion juniper habitat is declining, but so's sagebrush habitat and we've got the sage grouse that everybody's concerned about and everybody's worried it's going to get listed so we can get ranchers on board and the whole community can get behind like trying to protect, do anything we can to like protect the sage grouse. Sometimes it's, it's hard to figure out what the best science is.
1: Maybe it's that we don't have a lot of examples currently of people planning for climate change or at least intangible ways that we can see Um, like in the pinion juniper example, you know, it's difficult to know how to interpret that. Do we twiddle our thumbs for the next half a century and until pinion juniper really starts to die back? You know, the time scales are long, potentially. Um, there's definitely, you know, a big error, a big, you know, it could be you know, plus or minus 20 years or whatever, uh, with these climate change models until the changes that they're projecting would come into play. So it's really hard to know how to interpret and how to, how to continue to manage around these things. I think,
0: you know, one of the other, I guess, examples of like on the ground, active land management work that is being done all the time in the Intermountain West that's relevant to your work are
1: sagebrush restoration projects you know the snake river plain is hot and dry and it's gonna get more so i think um so restoring to that native sagebrush set may not be possible if not now in 50 years it's just yeah it's that might be the hard truth and that means restoring to something else i think I don't know if you'd call it restoration in that, in that example, you know, I mean, I think currently like 10% success rate is seen as really good in, in restoration world, um, restoring to an alternative state that you expect for the future.
0: So you worked on this project. Um, This was a part of your master's degree and and now you work for the BLM. Like, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about like your, your role uh, at at the BLM and like, if you have had, or if you like foresee having the opportunity to like, to to use some of this knowledge that you've gained through this work to work on things from the management side.
1: Yeah. So, so like I I told you, I'm, not necessarily speaking for the blm in my own capacity um yeah so i i'm working as a range range rangeland management specialist um which is a pretty big catch-all um and i do a little bit of everything Um, I, i do work with ranchers and permittees and um you know work with permits for for grazing to a certain degree um my main responsibility is mainly, um, monitoring allotments and, um, collecting data to, to then renew or not renew grazing permits based on the condition of what we see. Um, but, but yeah, I do, I do get to do data work pretty frequently. And, um, so I'm trying to find all the the ways I can be useful in that regard, Um, yeah as far as you know making use of, of research like this at the BLM, it's it's difficult. I think I think we might need more guidance and direction from from pretty high up from you know, Department of Interior as a whole, for example, to incorporate climate change planning. But, you know, if we take a really simple example, like deciding not to treat pinyon juniper in an area where we think it's really marginal, I don't know what our footing would be um, to, to cite climate change research as a, as a reason why we don't think that treatment is worthwhile in that, in that ecosystem. And that would be really interesting to see. We have so many mandates, so many conflicting mandates and then that's maybe why, why having a more more direct framework from above, um, a more specific way to think about climate change might be necessary. If our concern
0: is loss of sagebrush steppe habitat, the number one thing we can do is prevent wildfire, right? I, I think everybody uh, agrees with that. Um, and if we accept that especially in these lower elevation areas once a fire comes through it's essentially impossible to to bring that native sagebrush steppe habitat back that really like ups the ante on the importance of fire prevention in sagebrush steppe ecosystems like do these do these models i guess i was like reading through your paper and it wasn't super clear to me like what the models say about wildfire and the risk of wildfire within different, like within different
1: geographic areas. Right. Um, we, we make the distinction in the paper between process-based models and broadly uh, like correlations-based models. Uh, and so the correlations-based models are, um more what what i would do if i you know I'm, I'm using data and i'm making correlations between some response variable and some predictor um and then projecting that into the future um that's what i have experience with the process based models are a lot more complex um and they usually involve like running something at daily or monthly time steps um and kind of you know projecting how a plant will grow throughout that time something to that effect um so the the process-based models oftentimes will include wildfire um correlations models i don't think you really can do that um as far as fire itself i'm I don't know of any papers I'm sure they're out there but you know papers that make spatial projections about wildfire you know severity and risk in in rangelands I'm sure that's out there um I know we cite a couple of papers that are you know generally saying um it's expected to be more of an issue in in the future um and so you know we we didn't directly in, um, take anything wildfire related besides the models that used it in their own projections, which were a few we noted. Um, so we kind of had to lean on. Well, we, we we found these issues or these these projections, but we also generally expect more fires. The the effects of that would, you know, do X, Y, and Z on top of, or, you know, in contrast to the, what the projections themselves say, um, you know, so for example, um, with cheatgrass, you pointed out, you know, the cheatgrass fire cycle is, you know, we're still, we're trying to break out of that, but an increase in wildfire could definitely reduce sagebrush in more areas, reduce and juniper in more areas. Cheatgrass is a likely candidate to move in after that, and then stay um, and increase increase fire on its own. So that wasn't a dynamic that we could include um, or that we necessarily saw in these papers, um, but it was in the back of our mind, uh, definitely. And um, yeah, just another, another complexity with how to interpret the findings, um, because yeah, I would expect, you know, more reduction in those woody plants and more increase in sheep grass due to fire.
0: Right. So the models, at least the the type it certainly the type of models that don't incorporate wildfire into the projection, the projection that they're that they're giving, it, it's basically like known to be quite optimistic because it's not incorporating wildfire. We know that wildfire is inevitable, right? Like does that, you know, I mean, that's like, I I mean, it, it reminds me of like all the, you know, I mean, like I remember hearing about how the climate projections that I think like the IPCC released last year, like didn't include the possibility of permafrost melt. You know, and it's like, well, how can you mm-hmm. you're saying it's going to be this bad and there's a whole nother bad thing that could happen that can make it like so much worse, you know, <laughs> right. um, which, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's like it's better to have a model than than no model and no projection. But uh, like I guess like my concern is that like are these like these models, they're maybe not used as much as uh, as we would want them to be for like on the ground land management, but they're definitely used like in a public facing way. Right. Like people, uh, you know, politicians cite these models, like people use them as evidence that like, we should be doing X, Y, Z. Right. Or just to think about like, what's the future that we're going to live in. And it, it seems problematic to me, I guess, that like, we, it's known that, uh, a significant proportion of these models are underestimating the true impact.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely an issue. Um, yeah, the, the saying that you hear over and over again, kind of a cliche, but it's definitely true is, is, some, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Um, so you hear that a lot. Um, okay. Okay. And, that, but yeah, I mean, I think, the intercomparison is one more way to at least even out some of those, those issues. And, but yeah, in the case of wildfire, for example, yeah, you, you have this other layer that you need to interpret it through. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think if all you have is a bad model, then you might be in a worse position. I think that's fair to argue. But I think it all comes back to the, the correct interpretation. And you know, we certainly wouldn't want you to look at our maps and say, okay, gcrass is going away here. You know, SageBrush is going to be better here. It's not that direct.
0: If there were no logistical hurdles or no administrative hurdles, right? And these models and your sort of analysis of all the models could just be directly applied without having to worry about funding or logistics or administration. What what does that ideal scenario look like to you?
1: Well I guess first off we we would like more models. Um, you know, we had about four or five that we we leaned on for each vegetation type. Um, but I'm sure those don't represent all the possibilities. Um, or all the realities that will happen to these species. Um, so I think we, we are still in that phase where we probably need to see more. And, um, so that's number one. Um, number two, um, I mentioned that this, this wasn't a a true meta-analysis. Um, so there are definitely some, some ways that you can do a more robust comparison or a more robust, um, you know, see, see what what the effect size is in one place or another. So I think that would be really interesting um, for that to happen. We need a little bit more consistency in how people report their findings um, or what their their change, what their response is. Um, Yeah, I think being able to do something like that would be huge. Um, And then, yeah, I guess, you know, recognizing that this is not static, that, um, over time, the, the climate models will change over time, there'll be more models made and, um, you know, the consensus in the literature might swing one way or another. So continuing to monitor and look at what's out there.
0: More models and more analysis of the models.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
0: Do you think that over time these models like are becoming more accurate? Like, may, either because there's like better tools to do the analysis, or because we have like better methods to collect data, or is it just that if we're looking fifty years in the future, there's always going to basically be, you know, the same level of uncertainty?
1: That's a really good question. And I'm, I'm not sure, I mean, model validation is difficult to impossible when you're talking about something that will happen in the future, besides going 50 years into the future and seeing how well it did. I mean,
0: are there models from 50, like are there examples of like models from 50 years ago that you can do that
1: analysis on or? Not from that far back that I know of. I, I do know of some from, probably the early 2000s or maybe even the late 90s. Um, so yeah, definitely reanalyzing those over time would definitely be interesting. Um, what, what's usually used for, for climate models themselves is um, back casting or hind casting. You know, we have a model that we think will go into the future well you run it in reverse and you see if it can recreate what happened in the past. So that's one way to see, well, you know, does it work with, you know, real conditions? So if you had a data set of, you know, Sagebrush suitability that went back in time, then yeah, potentially you could run the model going backwards. I think, you know, there will always be you know, little new modeling tricks or, you know, different different um, different schema for analyzing data. But I don't think those are going to be what, what makes a giant change by themselves.
0: You're looking at models that are specific to sagebrush or cheatgrass or pinion juniper. You're looking like, you know, specific to like ecosystem type. But the climate modeling that most people in the public are familiar with are just these sort of very like general big picture, how much is the earth going to heat up over the next 50 years? And when I think about those types of projections based on climate modeling that we've been exposed to over the last 15, 20 years, those projections have become more dire over time. Now we understand that the changes that we're locked into that are inevitable are much more dramatic than, than we ever would have imagined in the 90s, right? Like, let's say you uh, did some modeling for the sagebrush step back in the 2000s, right? A lot of the, the data that that model is based off of is probably still valid, but the big picture projections of how much the Earth is going to heat up have changed. Can those models be updated? I guess is one question or are they, but then like, my other question is like, what's the time window, like for these 19 climate models that you were analyzing, like what's the time window and like, do we know that they're based on the most up-to-date information that we have about the overall big picture on planet earth of how much it's heating up?
1: Yeah. I think we, we set a limit, Going back to I think 2010, um, in order to not use some really really outdated uh, climate projections, um, but as far as kind of revisiting and rerunning those models from the past, it's a really interesting idea. And then I think in general, you know, um, you know, having more data sharing um, would be great. Um, so if that if that you know a model from the past were just available online you know anybody could rerun it potentially so the the climate data that people were using to make their projections um, in most cases are all they're they're using a, an ensemble of climate models um, so that's one one way that or one explanation why they would have similar similar future conditions and you know, at the really simple level, if you're thinking about increased temperature and increased precipitation variability, and X, Y, and Z, you know, that's how they're they're maybe getting similar responses. The other thing that I, I think we we didn't talk about is um, that we, you know we have um, multiple climate change scenarios. We have. Tons of them, but typically there's a, a high and a, a, like a, a business as usual, no, adapt- no you know, changes to emissions and then a fairly aggressive uh, reductions. Um, and so we looked at, you know, those low emissions and high emissions, uh, uh, like typically any one of these models will make projections for the low, the high, and then a mean or something like that. Um, so that was another level of um, agreement that we looked at, you know, because that's an even more. so what if we don't even know what the future looks like? you know, whereas you know, if we have one response in, in a business as usual scenario and a totally opposite response when we we start uh, reducing emissions, and that's another you know potential reason to not know how to interpret or, how to plan for the future if you have multiple futures possible. Uh, In most cases, we did find pretty high agreement between the high and low also.
0: I feel like I just got a lesson in climate modeling, so thanks a ton for your time, Scott. This has been super fascinating.
1: Yeah, great to talk to you.
0: That was our interview with Scott Zimmer, former master's student at Utah State University and a rangeland management specialist with the Bureau of Land Management. If you'd like to learn more about this podcast and the organization that produces it, you can head over to birdsofpreyncapartnership.org or check out the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership on Facebook dedication point is a production of the birds of prey nca partnership in association with the wild lens collective and with support from the conservation lands foundation today's episode was produced by myself your host matt Podolsky. music is by the great turtle